Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models Episode 31. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you doing, Steve? I am also doing well. Uh, I ate a lot of carbs. And I'm on like the reverse keto diet. I basically just eat carbs. Yeah. And then I I just train jujitsu a few times a week, hoping that that will burn them all off. And it doesn't. But, you know, then I'm getting a weight advantage. I I don't have a weight problem. I have a weight advantage is the way I like to think of it. Yeah. Carbs are the best. Too bad they're (laughs) the worst for you. Yeah. It's like, it's literally just like turning into insulin, but you know, it tastes really good. So I'm I'm at a point in my life where if I have like a sugary treat, then the next day I basically have the equivalent of a hangover for the first few hours of the day and I'm all achy and my joints are all sore. It's a really weird feeling. You know what? I get that now too. And I don't know how much of it is age or just eating a cleaner diet. But if I drink alcohol now, even like one drink, I feel terrible the next day. Even before that, after the drink, I normally just feel awful. Like I feel dehydrated and gross and I get a headache and I feel slow. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. It's one of those things where the more you eat healthy, the less you crave the unhealthy stuff. And it gets to the point where eating the unhealthy stuff actually makes you feel bad, not good. Yeah, I I think it maybe is because we have the Asian... uh Asian flush alcohol <laughs> gene. Although you don't get flush when you drink alcohol. I, I remember you used to be able to drink a bunch and it wouldn't really affect you too much. Yeah. Whereas I've always I've always struggled to hold my liquor and I go red after one or two drinks. Yeah. Alcohol tolerance is something that I, I've always had, but it just kind of makes me feel gross, especially as I've, I've gotten older. You know, I used to be yeah. able to, to drink a lot more, but I think it's, I mean, the dangerous thing about any type of unhealthy stuff is that your body gets used to it and it gets to the point where, you know, I can sit down and drink five drinks and it's not even a thing, right? That's not good. (laughs) You know, if if your body is conditioned to the point where you can put that much garbage into your body and your body is just used to it, that's not a good thing. Whereas if you moderate more, you actually find you want less of that bad stuff because your body doesn't tolerate it as well, which is actually how it should be. Yeah. And the moral moral of the story, alcohol is bad. Yep. There you go. be enjoyed in uh, moderation. Anyway, today we're talking about predictable <laughs> responses. <laughs> so this is a mental model that we have alluded to in the past. And I think everyone probably has some inkling of how important this is. But it's one of those things where someone can explain it to you and you conceptually understand it. But it's hard to apply in practice and it's hard to understand where you would really use it. So what we're hoping today is that we can talk a bit about the concept and then maybe give some specifics of how you would apply this and what kind of positions this could be beneficial to you. Yeah, and, it, and it's, a, it's a concept that's all throughout grappling, whether it's on the ground, uh, in submission cases, standing up, you know, takedown uh, grappling. It's predictable responses is everywhere. And it's something that you see 
people who have more of an understanding of jujitsu start to implement this concept into their game. Whereas if you're brand new, you're probably just trying to stay alive and you know, you don't really know what you're doing, but as you get older, you will try to sort of create opportunities for yourself by creating attacks on your opponent, breaking their alignment. We're going to talk about that today, how you can sort of turn those into other opportunities. Yeah. When when you're, when you're brand new, the only predictable response is you're going to tap out. It's just a matter of how quickly. Don't die. (laughs) Yeah. So, in terms of what we mean when we say predictable responses, we're basically talking about using cre- creating an action that stimulates your opponent to create a reaction. And the idea is, if you know what that reaction is going to be, then you can pounce on it ideally before your opponent even knows that they've done it. Now, often when people talk about predictable reactions in the martial arts, this comes up a lot when you're talking about stand-up, like how you set up a takedown. You you always hear wrestlers talk about, you know, push-pull dynamics when you're doing takedowns. Yeah, <clears throat> snap-downs. Yeah, yeah. In judo, a big part of getting kazushi is creating predictable responses. But on the ground, it is just as important. And it's something that everyone should understand you can apply into your game. At a higher level, and, and I'm not even talking about like black belt level, but you know, Anywhere beyond like first day white belt, predictable responses become important because once your opponent knows how to defend a triangle, it gets very difficult to just throw up a triangle on them and get it. So you've got to be much more diligent in your setup. It's less about how you just do a move and it's more about making sure that when the when it is time to do the move, you've created an environment where that move has a high percentage chance of succeeding. Yeah, and this is like, for example, in judo, you might see predictable responses with... Um with a a judoka snapping down their partner's gi or creating different pushing and pulling or they might incorporate their feet start to use uh, ashiwaza and try to create trips and and throw off the footwork of their opponent um you know and and what we're basically talking about here is sequences and how you know to, to be an effective grappler it's important to understand what the responses of your opponent will be in defense to you know attacks that you launch on them so always thinking ahead and thinking about what what are the possible you know the, the most predictable responses usually like anywhere between three to five there'll be three to five options for your opponent to escape and if you're aware of them and you know how you see them coming and you can uh, create some some foresight there then you'll be able to create way better responses and be way more accurate with your submissions your takedowns everything so the reason predictable responses are so important i mean hopefully it's clear what we're talking about now but the reason why they matter so much is because as we've discussed in prior episodes being able to dictate the pace is ultra critical when you're sparring with someone in fact in a lot of situations it is kind of the the primary thing that determines who's going to (laughs) win you know matt i don't know about you but some Sometimes I feel this, like when I'm sparring with someone, I, if I'm the one dictating the pace, I can feel that I am and I know I'm probably going to win. Whereas on the other side, if I feel like everything I'm doing is like a desperate reaction to what the other guy's up to, I know I'm probably going to lose. Yeah. And, and if you're, if you're one of the higher ranks in the school, then you might get accustomed to rolling lighter because you are uh, trying to use less strength and letting letting people work things on you so you can actually train your predict your knowledge of predictable responses but um you know if you you, you can uh you can definitely make the mistake of being too passive and then sometimes uh even a much lower rank who's very aggressive and very um 
you know, tr- tr- maybe possibly trying to pour it on a higher rank a little bit more. It might be coming in hot and then you find yourself in some deep trouble right away. So it's important to also <laughs> assess what kind of uh, person you're fighting. So if they're coming in hot, then you need to, you know that you need to prevent them from getting an inch because mm-hmm. they'll take a mile. Where if someone comes in passively, you know, it's going to be more of a playful role. You know, that's a really, really good suggestion because when I started to get more experienced at jujitsu, I, you know, I kind of realized that you need to turn the dial down a bit on the more junior guys, but I didn't know exactly how to do it. So what I would do is I would basically just sit there and let them do what they wanted, and then I would try to react to them. And the problem with doing that is after a few years, I realized I was training myself out of dictating the pace. So it it became a psychological thing where part of my game was to sit back passively and let the other person attack. And even to this day, sometimes I catch myself doing that where I'm waiting for the other person to make the move, and that's not something you want to do in a combat sport. Yeah, and I've made that mistake in competition before and possibly being too passive or not having the confidence to be more outgoing and I've definitely paid for it in matches sometimes um, you know th- there's I think there's a difference between being a reactionary fighter and being a counter fighter uh, if you're I would think that if you're a counter fighter you you're still good at dictating the pace but you just specialize in uh, reacting to your opponent's attacks and then some people will just go in there and you know, be very aggressive and always go hard and always try and take control of the match. Like a good example of that is like Gary Tonin or Nikki Ryan. Most of the guys from the Danaher squad have a mentality of pushing forward always and trying to get the finish. Whereas a lot of players will sit back and try and just, you know, play little games, stall out a little bit and, uh, and acquire points. Yeah. And when we're talking about, you know, taking control like that, we're not talking about trying to muscle or bully your way into control. It's more about not letting the other person be the one who is determining the action and you determining the reaction. That doesn't mean you need to be super speedy or super strong. It just means that you need to be constantly on the attack and making sure that you're the one who is controlling what happens in the fight. You want to be in a state where the other guy is constantly reacting to you and doesn't have time to take assertive action and do what he wants to do, right? You want him to always be defending what you're doing. Yeah, I think Keenan calls this tempo. He refers to it as tempo. And sometimes the best way that I illustrate it to my students is I demonstrate like a a standing pass um, and, and maybe like a a bullfighter pass or, or a leg drag pass, something like this, where essentially the person on top is coming in and trying to create a dominant angle and get past the guard before your opponent can even get uh, grips. Because if the person on the bottom doesn't have grips, by the time your partner's in neon belly, you're you're purely in defensive framing mode. You know, it's you've now gone into the third phase of guard where your guard you basically don't have a guard, and it's much harder to recover from this position as opposed to if you were able to grip up first, set frame first you know keep keep your hips at a good angle then then it's going to be a lot uh you're going to be a lot more better shape on the bottom so definitely when you're looking for tempo you're trying to prevent your opponent from getting crucial things like grips that will allow them to dictate the pace yeah yeah and as i mentioned prior the way that i think of this is if you feel like you are constantly reacting to what your opponent is doing and you're just scrambling to keep up and you're on the defensive you're not dictating the pace that's all that basically means now Hopefully that has convinced everyone how important it is to dictate the pace. But the question then is, how do predictable responses help you do this? Now, the main thing is, uh, you know, a lot of dictating the pace comes down to reaction time, right? It comes down to how quickly you can implement a game plan without having to wait and to stop and to think and to assess. And that's the reason why 
higher level guys tend to be so much more dangerous than junior guys. It's not because they're necessarily like they know more techniques or anything. It's because they've drilled and trained so much that just there's a lot of things that they're comfortable with and they're familiar with and they don't have to think about, you know, exactly. they, they, they don't have they, to think about, yeah, it. they've drilled these things right into their muscle memory. You know, we, we talked earlier, Josh Waiskin calls that like form to leave form where he talks about drilling something so much that you don't have to think about it. And Salah Hibero has talked about that too. How if you, you know, if you think you die, basically, if you have to stop and think about what you're doing, that's a window of time where your opponent is going to be implementing their game plan and you're not. So predictable responses become important because if you know what your opponent is going to do, then you don't have to stop and think and wait to see what they're going to do. You can just immediately move forward with your game plan. Um, this is why so many successful attacks like sweeps or submissions, um, normally they, they work not just by like throwing up the, the sweep or whatever, but by doing something to lead your opponent into a position where that sweep is going to be more effective. Uh, most single techniques don't work in a bubble this way. So the reason why predictable responses are so critical is because they reduce your reaction time and they allow you to think ahead and plan ahead. Like if I'm just starting a match with Matt, then I don't know what he's going to do. He could do anything. And that means I've got to do a lot of thinking and I've got to be doing a lot of analysis because there are, you know, effectively infinite things that could occur. But if I get the grips that I want and I move Matt in a certain way, I can reduce the number of options that Matt has and narrow down the number of things he's likely to do. So then instead of needing to think about a million things, I only need to anticipate three things. And that's a lot easier for me to work with mentally. I don't need to stop and think about that. And the the more I can reduce my opponent's options, the more I can kind of channel them into the direction I want them to go, right? It's like the, it's like a military strategy, you know, where you try to route people through a narrow path so that you can control yeah. and fight them one at a time. Um, and in fact, this strategy uh, has been discussed in jujitsu. I've, I've heard it called funneling, where the idea is you progressively take away your opponent's options to narrow them into the game plan that you want them to play, not the other way around. Yeah, because there's always going to be... Um and up uh, a way for your opponent to escape an attack. There's not one attack in jiu-jitsu that is um, foolproof or 100%. So it's important to just, first of all, come to terms with that, that there's never going to be a, a moment where you have your opponent and they don't have some kind of option. They might be too late to perform a technique, but there's always going to be a way that they can escape. So, you know, and like you said, really reducing your reaction time, that only comes with you know, first of all, you need the proper instruction. I think an instructor that's going to teach you about things like alignment and levers and stuff like that, but also just time accumulated on the mats. I used to just say it was, you know, that takes years and years, but you can see some of the jujitsu fighters today. It really doesn't take years and years and years with the proper instruction. You can really make amazing progress in a short amount of time. And you'll notice that this is a, this is sort of a trait of really high level grapplers is they're, they, they don't go for one technique. They'll set multiple techniques out and they're waiting for the right response so that they can capitalize on a reaction rather than, you know, going into something, say it's guard passing, going in and expecting to get your guard pass on the first or second attempt. You know that at the highest level, especially, you know, in the competition when there's so much on the line that there's going to be, you know, upwards and beyond 10, 10 responses from your opponent. So it's going to take a lot at the highest levels to, to actually perform a technique. You know, sometimes it takes the whole match before there's finally a breakthrough and someone gets through. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, when, it, when someone has good alignments and they're aware of an attack, 
it's fundamentally a lot harder to pull off that attack, especially if they're they're well trained, right? I mean, I think everyone from day one understands that when when you're drilling a move in practice, it might seem easy and effortless, but against even the most rudimentary resistance, that move can become really really challenging to do. You know, th- this seems to happen all the time where you know you're you're drilling triangles or whatever in class, and it feels great and it feels like you really got this, but then as soon as you try to use it in sparring, even against a super junior person, it just doesn't work. And usually that's because you didn't set it up properly. You know, it's because you didn't go into the triangle in a situation where the opponent's alignment was fully broken. And the way that you kind of get there is with predictable responses, right? Every time you make your opponent move a little bit, you create an opportunity for a little bit of space. Um, We talked earlier about how a lot of the time single techniques are not very wise, but chaining techniques is together. So chaining techniques together often goes hand in hand with predictable responses. You know that the first move you do is probably not going to work, but maybe it'll loosen the guy's grip a little bit. So then you you try a second move and maybe that one won't work, but maybe it's wobbled the guy's base a bit. And then by the time you get to the third or the fourth move, now you're really starting to apply pressure, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of the time it's not about doing one move. It's about using your your first few attacks to create openings for the real attacks coming down the road. And not only do you have to be able to, you know, s- start to implement attacks to create reactions, but you have to you have to be able to um, be aware of your opponent and and recognize when they've done something that you're expecting, so that you can immediately implement another another attack. So you, not only do you have to be offensive, but you have to be receptive to what your opponent's doing, so that you can make the the correct reaction. And this is um. You know, this is actually something that happens in really all sports. If you see it, uh, if you watch striking, you know you're gonna see you're gonna see boxers and do feints and things like this, and send little send little uh, mind games to their opponents. Or even I, a lot of the time, I like to think about when I'm guard passing, using the footwork and and the feinting of like somebody in a shootout situation in hockey trying to fake out a goalie. It's almost the exact same thing using head movements and feints. You can um you can really sort of play tricks with your opponent's mind, but but definitely I think the best reactions that you can get are the ones that uh that break your opponent's alignment because that just, you know, we've talked about the score before in past game uh past episodes where posture structure base, you each have three, you know, those three points that make up alignment. Well, every time you do something that creates a reaction, ideally you you remove one or two or possibly even all of all of those elements of of defense from your opponent so always thinking about breaking your alignment i think is more important than just trying to execute moves as we've discussed before yeah and that was a really good point about the importance of faking out your opponent and something that i I took me a long time to really get into my game Um, the problem is it's very easy to telegraph your intent in jiu-jitsu and this is a situation where you might be creating predictable responses that cue your opponent as to what you're going to do. Yeah. So a lot of the time if you're having trouble like you know getting a triangle well, maybe a big part of that is because your opponent knows you're going for a triangle. Yeah. So a big part of advancing your game is learning to get into these techniques without your opponent knowing that that's what's happening. Because like even at a very basic level, at a white belt level, if you grab onto your opponent's arm and try to pull it uh, from, from guard, they probably know you might be thinking about an arm bar yeah. and they're going to defend. And at that point, it doesn't matter how well you go through the motions. If they have set up a defense to your attack, you know, 
you got to understand when a door is closed to you. you. You also have to understand when a door is open to you, right? So a big part of predictable responses is to funnel your opponent into a few key situations where, where you know what the exploit is going to be and then attack from there. Yeah. And it's, and it's important to know that if maybe you're newer to jujitsu and this, you know, this is sort of a newer idea and you're thinking about how you can be more of a finesse player, just remember that predictable responses don't require a lot of strength. Um, a lot of the time, predictable responses require no strength and are literally just messages that you are sending your opponent through body language or, you know, through, through maybe a little bit of Kazushi here, but you're actually trying to set something else up and you already have a trap waiting and seeing those steps ahead, uh, and, and, and really being able to sequence your attacks, maybe, you know, like I said, upwards and beyond 10 times, that's when you really don't even need to use strength. You just need to know where you're funneling your opponent to, and then hopefully you'll, you'll beat them to their, their next defense sequence. And sometimes, creating predictable responses does not need to be as sophisticated as like, you know, I attempt a scissor sweep and then I pivot to something else. It can be as simple as like, if I look at your legs, you're probably going to either consciously or subconsciously assume that I'm going to attack your legs. So a lot of the time, like if you be wary of where you're looking because your opponent will, mm-hmm. I see this a lot when guys are doing stand up. Like I, if, if I see two guys standing up and one guy is constantly staring at the other guy's feet, like yeah. there is a either, either he is completely telegraphing that he's going to do a shot or he's really smart and he's faking the other guy out and he's going to do something else. So this is something that you can exploit, right? You can, you can make your opponent think you're going somewhere that you're not just by where you focus your own attention if you do it visibly enough. Yeah, and, and with masking your intentions, make sure you do think about um, things like body language, like you were talking about where your opponent's looking or whatever, but also uh, stance, right? Um, more, mm-hmm. more apparent when you're on the feet because stance really plays a factor, but stance also applies to even if you're on your back and your guard, you know, what, what do your frames look like? What, you know, are you in base? Do you have good posture? All that stuff when you're standing your stance dictates a lot of your intention so if you have a really low stance i can probably either predict that you're going to pull guard or you're going to try and shoot right so always always trying to match your eyes with your opponent i think is a good tip like if you're wrestling with someone try to keep your eyes below or at level with your opponent's eyes because good wrestlers that's sort of what you look for you look to see what their level is at and a lot of the time a lot of the reactions they try and create aren't even ones where they're touching you they could just be level changing quickly and fainting trying to set up uh trying to get you to sprawl or to commit to a defense and then they're gonna act upon the reaction so if you watch if you ever watch high level wrestling this is where you really see some explosive predictable responses come without even contact between two athletes yeah i remember i I was at a carlos gracie jr seminar one time and one of the things he showed which I, i thought was really cool was he talked about how you know one of the ways to get a single leg is fake a guard pull like if the guy thinks you're going to jump on him and then you immediately drop down low his body is primed to go up and you and you've moved downwards and the converse applies as well right you know if you want to guard pull sometimes faking a shot is going to put the guy out of position for the guard pull so just little twitchy responses that make the guy think you're going one way can open up doors in the other direction yeah we we actually drilled this yesterday in class is is the uh well, I, it's funny you say Carlos Gracie Jr. It just goes to show how yeah. how long this has been along yeah. f- around for. But uh, what rings in my mind when you des- describe this technique is the Mendez brothers. Mm-hmm. They're actually really good at it. It's basically an ankle ankle pick from a from a uh, guard pull fake using the collar grip. So mm-hmm. you know, if you, and and what we're realizing when we 
when we were drilling it is that you don't even need to really sell the guard pole too much. You just need to create the proper Kazushi with the grip and you need to change your levels in such a way that they believe you're falling back. And then once they react, you're able to shoot forward and get that ankle pick. It's a, you know, it really doesn't require a lot of strength. It's more about the timing of it all and creating that reaction. But that's a good point how you don't want to oversell it, right? If you're overly dramatic about your fake guard pull or your fake shot, then it gives the other guy time to process and adjust. Exactly. You know, like they, you... they might think, they might see that you're like, one thing we found is one of the guys was he was actually lifting his foot up and p- almost putting it on the hip, but then retracting it. Mm-hmm. But the lo- the more that he tries to sell that guard pull, the the more time he's wasting, and the quicker the or, or sorry, the more time your his his opponent will have to respond and maybe grab his leg and get his quick two points. Right? So. Yeah, it's one of those things where you need to do it fast enough that the the other guy doesn't have time to think. It needs to be something that triggers an instinctual reaction exactly if, if you take too long with your predictable response then it gives the your opponent's brain time to catch up and that's not what you want right yeah now, and additionally if you're slow then that creates openings for your opponent and then you might lose the uh, you know you might lose the tempo you might be on the defense now and maybe the other guy is dictating the pace mm-hmm. yeah so um just to kind of recap um predictable responses they're they're really really important for dictating the pace um mostly because they allow you to through the process of tying techniques together create openings that will progressively break alignment just a little bit here and there very few moves work the first time and it's super important to mask your intention so that your opponent doesn't know what you're doing because that's an example of you giving off a predictable response. Like the most common one is that, you know, um, if I try to arm bar you, if I grab your arm directly, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Something that uh, I was always taught, you know, as a gi guy is if you want to arm bar the guy, grab him by the collar because then that, that is a far easier way to arm bar because you still get the same level of control, but now your opponent is confused about what you're going to do. Whereas yeah, you, you could, you might be going for a choke. Yeah. Whereas if you just grab the arm it is ultra ultra clear what's about to happen right so your opponent's defense becomes very straightforward Um, another example of creating a predictable response that i personally love to do is attempting something and if it doesn't work making my opponent think i've given up on it and then when he drops his defenses immediately doing it again (laughs) i do this a lot with the ezekiel choke and it always works where i go to get it and if the guy gets like his hands up to defend then i'll put in a good effort like i'm gonna get it and then i let go of the grips and then he immediately drops his hands and then i go and i do it again right away (laughs) like this this works a shocking amount of time where you deliberately give it up and then when your opponent drops their guard you just take it again yeah there's it's funny jujitsu is such a mental battle that there's these little mind skirmishes all throughout grappling like you know maybe maybe you're uh you're you're going for a choke and then you squeeze but you you know you you let it go or whatever and let them think that they can they can get a little bit of room but in that movement you know maybe you you're able to to adjust your grip and get like a face crank from there or something (laughs) like that you're always able to play these little games um you know even with your breathing sometimes your opponent's really listening to your breathing so you can like set certain tricks and and things like that and always listen to your opponent's breathing is i think a a good way to sort of you know decide whether or not they're tired uh whether they're uncomfortable if their alignment's broken or maybe even if a choke is working if you hear gurgling that's probably a pretty good sign that the choke is on in some way shape or form or the guy is faking you right this is another strategy is if the guy's got if the guy's got a choke that is nowhere close but you start gurgling and making weird noises and panicking a little bit he's gonna put it on and this is a good way to get people to burn themselves out like if there's nothing there and little little (laughs) tricks are all throughout grappling so 
Um, so in terms of the types of predictable responses, they, in my mind, kind of fall into two categories. There are the physiological ones, which is like, this is just how your body behaves. Uh, and then like there, if you get pushed backwards, you're, you're going to take yeah. a step back to compose your base. Exactly. You know, if, I, if you get pushed, then you're going to take a step back and you're going to probably put some pressure forward to counter. If you get pulled, you're going to probably try to um, pull yourself backwards out of it. Um, and, but then it goes beyond that too, right? We've talked about controlled breathing and um, staying loose. Like these are physiological responses where your body, if it goes into fight or flight mode, you start breathing more heavily and tensing up. Then you start tensing up. And so the interesting thing is when it comes to predictable responses at the biological level, some of these you can train yourself out of. And that can be very important to understand because some of these predictable responses don't work in a competitive grappling environment. Yeah. Like tensing up, for example, or losing control of your breathing. These are bad things. Uh, but over time, you can train yourself out of those. So in addition to the physiological responses, there, there are also the trained ones. And as I mentioned, sometimes this can be you learning to override the things that come naturally to human beings. But it can also be things that like you would never just know to do biologically. Like we all know that if someone tries to triangle you, your, your first defense should probably be to try to posture up. Like there is no biological reason why that would be obvious or intuitive to you. But through training, we learned that that's the first thing that you should do. So there's kind of these two different categories of things and you can you can exploit them both right one one at the physiological level but also understanding how a, a trained opponent is going to react um, and sometimes you can actually mess with people by doing things that they don't expect like we we all fall into patterns about what you're supposed to do yeah. when you're doing jujitsu but sometimes if you do something that is completely unpredictable it mm -hmm. just it throws the guy off of his game so much that then he doesn't know how to respond and that can be a good place to be yeah absolutely and and you know just just, just think of why when someone who's brand new who walks into the gym, why they're, it's so easy to, to do what you want to them. It's because you know what their predictable responses are going to be. They're going to be, they're going to be spazzing most of the time. They're going to be very rigid. They're going to be unable to control their heart rate and their breathing. And they're going to be fighting for their dear life. And a lot of the time they'll be doing really like silly things. Like, you know, that newbies will give you their backs because they don't like the pressure straightforward. You know, they're like, they'll leave limbs exposed. And if you know, like if you can predict what someone's going to do and they're brand new, um, it's very easy to take advantage of them. And so it takes time to develop these sequential defenses and, and your understanding of what you're, you know, getting an idea of what your opponent's going to do and it explains why it's so easy to handle beginners. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I remember my instructor one time was teaching the somersault pass. And for those who haven't seen it, it is where you're in the other guy's open guard and you literally do like a somersault right over top of his face. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so, so it's not this is the greatest pass. No, but, but this is my, what my instructor said is like, this is not a high percentage pass. It's probably not going to work, but it's worth That's what you should yeah. say before no, you teach a technique. No, no, but he, what, what he said was it's worth considering because it makes your opponent think, right? Because your opponent is going to think if this guy's crazy enough to try this, what else is he crazy enough to try? <laughs> right? oh, there, there's some value to being unpredictable sometimes. I mean, obviously you don't necessarily want to structure your whole game plan just around doing things for the sole reason that no one else does them. But sometimes by shaking it up a bit, you can kind of break people's mental 
mental patterns and their, their preconceptions of what you're going to do. And that can really screw up their ability to read your responses. Yeah. And, and there's another side of, of uh, predictable responses too, that we haven't talked about. Like say someone is, let's say I'm, you know, reasonably high level and I have good leg locks. And then I go against someone who's like, you know, pretty high level or, or decently high level, but knows nothing about leg locks. So it's very important that I understand the possibilities of what could happen if I get a leg lock on this person and, and, and we're in a training scenario, you know, this person might not know what to do and they might spin completely the wrong direction. And if I don't have that in my mind where, uh, I, you know, I don't have my training partner's um, you know, safety in my, in mind. And I, I know what, what someone who's uncomfortable with these scenarios, what they might do. Um, if I, if I don't know what they're going to do, then that person might get hurt because I hold on to the leg lock too long. Like quite commonly when you're rolling with someone and they're not, they don't know much about leg locks and you get a heel hook on them or whatever, you know, you better be prepared to let go of that because they might do something really stupid in a yeah. second. You have to, you know, you have to, you have to know predictable responses to be effective in jujitsu, but also in a learning environment for other people to keep people safe from themselves. You need to also be aware of predictable responses. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, not all predictable responses lead to good jujitsu. Like there's a lot of predictable responses that come from lack of experience, but there's also a lot of predictable responses that honestly would be effective in a real fight, but due to the rules, we don't do them. Uh, mostly I'm thinking around things like slamming, right? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, or or, sure. or even striking. And these are things where if, if all you train is jujitsu and you train that extensively, you run the risk of creating habits that might not necessarily work in a real fight simply because you're so used to, you, you've trained your predictable responses within the rules. So um, I, I always suggest that when you're training, uh, regardless of what exactly you're training for, whether it be like sport jiu-jitsu or self-defense or MMA or just fun, um, I would suggest that e even if you aren't training with these, um, you know, these like band techniques that you still be aware of them and make sure that whatever you're doing will counter them. Like a, you know, a good example is if you're going from arm bar for arm bars or triangles from the bottom, you need to know that picking up, getting picked up and slammed or getting spiked on your head is an option. Yeah. And even if your partner is nice enough to not do it to you, um, you need to know how to defend that. And actually you should probably work that into your arm bar, your, you know, your submission strategy. And similarly, don't expect that your opponent knows that these things are banned <laughs> because sometimes, um, yeah. yeah, I remember one time I was sparring with a white belt and I had him in like a triangle and he said like, Hey, check it out. I've got the best defense for this. And he just tried to slam me. <laughs> so, you know, so, I mean, he, he doesn't necessarily know that that's not legal, right? It, it actually, to be fair, it isn't totally obvious that it would be illegal. You know, we, why is it allowed to like uchimata someone onto their face, but not allowed to slam them from a triangle? I actually don't know. It, it doesn't really make that much sense when you think about it. So you have to be understanding of the fact that sometimes predictable responses can hurt your development if they, they close your mind to certain possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, if you're training for jujitsu for the street, then yeah, <laughs> should be doing barambolos, guys. Come on. Speaking of unusual jujitsu applications, I wonder if Stefan Kesting is still alive. I mean, I I do see his posts on face on Facebook, but I'm not sure if they're like scheduled or not. Yeah, for those of you guys that don't know, Stefan Kesting is currently on a canoeing trip in northern Canada. Yeah. He's I think. on a, a thousand mile solo canoe journey. I, I, and didn't he just get like married too or something? I think so. And now I think he's go he's being put out to pasture. Yeah. So he's doing his honeymoon <laughs> by himself as far as I can tell. Have fun, uh, Stefan. Yeah, I hope you're still alive. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so I, hopefully that's a pretty comprehensive discussion around what these things are. Maybe, Matt, we could give some more concrete examples of like what are some common exploits that you can use in terms of predictable responses. Well, I think uh, um, one of the more uh, like sequences that are pretty familiar, no matter what your jiu-jitsu background is, you know, is is from the closed guard, the Kimura triangle armbar omoplata sequence, right? Like these are all moves that are very much related. They can all be done from the, from a closed guard situation. And um, usually attacking one will create a defense that opens up something else. So um, that, you know, finding, finding certain submissions or submission systems that flow into the other and, um, and are, you know, what, what we referred to as technique chaining, you're going to be able to go like one of the ones that I go for a lot of the times I'll shoot up a triangle, my opponent will defend, and then I'll be able to switch to an arm bar just by pivoting my hips behind their elbow, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one of my favorite moves. And as long as I am technically sound and that I'm breaking their alignment the entire way and making sure that they can't posture, then I know there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to get that arm bar. But let's say they manage to bail and turn out, who knows, there might be an omoplata there that leads to me, uh, that, that's left for me then what's the next sequence? Well, they're probably going to try and roll out of the omoplata. So I need to know how to re-roll. I need to know how to how to maintain broken alignment of my opponent while I maintain the omoplata position. And then from there, you know, who knows where that technique will go. So it's just, it's really is an infinite thing of, of building sequences and putting different systems together. Yeah. I think the old, uh, close guard submission chain there is probably the best known example of how predictable responses and technique chaining can help you. Uh, the, the arm bar, the triangle and the omoplata play so well off of each other and the cross choke as well, which is something that people often don't uh, forget to, they forget to add into that equation. For me, a lot of the time from close guard, I will fake a scissor sweep or something, but I'll, I'll do so with my knee in front of the guy's arm. And when he goes to post, I'll use that to throw up a triangle or I'll go for a bump sweep, which is I personally yeah. find hard to get. And then when he bases, I'll grab his arm and omoplata him on the way down. So there, I mean, I know a lot of people prefer the triangle from there, but I, I do like omoplatas. Yeah. And you notice that like, if you're training with people who know those sequences, they rarely get caught in them. Right? Yeah, like yeah, I, yeah. I have one guy in my school that I, I, I would get that bump sweep triangle on a lot. And now it's, it's never there because he knows that I'm going to go for that move. And he'll actually leave traps for me. Like he'll posture really heavy up in the open guard. And then when I go to bump sweep, he'll hip sprawl and, and, and uh, I, there's no way I can I can bump sweep him. So he for that second he's opened my guard up and he starts to look to pass using that. So one of the, one of the things I find you know it's so hard to to pass a really good close guard is I'm I'm waiting for them to open their legs, almost letting them go for an attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and and hope and you know if they take the bait, awesome. They've opened their legs and I can I can now exploit the fact that they've broken their own kinetic chain and try and escape the guard. But you know a lot of the times really good guard players won't open their guard unless mm-hmm. they break your alignment or they you know, switch their hip angles or whatever. So yeah, um, those are the most frustrating types of closed guard players where they just, they keep shuffling their hips and pulling you back down and you just can't even get them to uncross their ankles. That is such a, not many people play that anymore, but it is so frustrating when someone's good at that. Yeah, it is really annoying. And, and, you know, we've, we've discussed um, submission sequences from the closed guard, but we could also totally go in another direction and discuss, let's say like in judo, uh, the the whole Ashiwaza game or foot sweeping technique game, like your Ochigari or Ko-Ochigari, Dash Uberai. These are all different trips and and uh, and techniques using the feet in judo and. Um, it's it's a you'll you'll notice this is one of the big differences I find between 
wrestling a judo person and wrestling a wrestler is the judo fighters will come up more more strong postured like straight straight up and down usually leaving them susceptible to shots but also playing more of the the foot tripping game you know trying to get you off balance and creating um reactions where they can ideally throw you or trip you so trying to basically trying to shift your center of gravity in different ways and this this is also another concept that happens when let's say you're playing Delaheva from the bottom you know you always want to move your opponent's center of gravity in different directions and then usually as they're recomposing their base in a direction that's where you can exploit it and take them over for a sweep or you know go for a back take or whatever you're going to do so really uh center of gravity is also something not not just a submission based sequence of attack but uh a breaking of base center gravity based attack yeah and i mean a lot of the time with predictable responses when you attack one move you your opponent to defend has to compensate in by like placing their their weight in one direction or posting on one side it's that natural reaction yeah that you were mentioning earlier yeah and and that's the situation there where it's going to open up a window somewhere else and the mistake that a lot of people make is they they try that one move and the guy posts her bases and they just give up and then they reset Uh, whereas what you should do is immediately move to attack something where the space is opened up now that's really the best way to go forward and that's how you exploit these predictable responses like a you know, it's funny, we were talking about the bump sweep earlier. The bump sweep is a move where, from my experience, almost all of the time, it's a fake out. Like, the guy, very rarely do people, I find, actually succeed at getting the bump sweep, but people use that to set up something else. So, you've got to be super careful when your opponent is trying to bump sweep you, because normally... They're not necessarily going for the bump sweep. They're trying to get you to put your hand somewhere that you don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are other examples too. Like if you're mounted on someone and they they shell up and you know they they bring their hands up and you can't you can't pull an arm free, you can't pull, get at their neck. A lot of the time, what I like to do from there is like fake out an Americana and just push down on one of their arms uh, because even if I don't think I'm going to get that move, it forces them to then move and then suddenly there's a bit more space than there was before. So it's it's something that I've I've seen a lot of instructors teach as a counter to that where if your opponent is just they're totally shelled up when you're mounted on top of them sometimes attacking an americana is a good first step because even if you're not going to get it a lot of the time your opponent will adapt by turning to their side and bringing their other arm into play and now there's space to move so it's a good setup to get into like if you want to go up to like a jockey mount or something or you want to switch to an arm bar going for an americana for mount is a good example of how you can create a predictable response yeah Cool. Um, uh, in terms of uh, now, in terms of predictable responses too, a big part of this is when you are going for a submission. The nice thing about going for submissions is most of them have a relatively small set of predictable responses, right? Most submissions have maybe three or so well-known escapes. The mistake a lot of people make is they're not prepared for those. <laughs> so, so what I like to do when I'm teaching people how to do a submission is I make sure that not only do I teach them the submission, but I teach them the predictable responses to it. And then I explain what you have to do to mitigate those, right? Mm-hmm. So like if, if you're arm barring someone, I mean, from my perspective, probably the most predictable responses are some attempt at a stack some attempt at a hitchhiker or some attempt at, um, I don't exactly know what you call it, but the, the escape where kind of you get your head back in and then you sit on the guy's leg. Oh, like you bridge onto yeah, his you, leg. Yeah, you bridge onto his leg. I've heard that called the rooftop escape, but I don't yeah. know if that's the correct name. Um, and but, and you can pretty much guarantee that they're going to try and create a kinetic chain by linking their hands yeah, together, yeah, clasping yeah. their hands in some way. That's almost guaranteed. Yeah. Or at the, at the very least, they'll grab their gi. So once you know that, the mistake that a lot of people make is they go for the arm bar, but they're not ready for one of these 
these things. So, you know, in the simplest case, the person grabs their hands and they have no answer to that, <laughs> right? Um, and, and a lot of the time, like a monkey with their hand in the cookie jar, they're so close to a submission that they're unwilling to let it go or move on or, or advance for fear of losing it. So they've got tunnel vision. But a lot of the time, you know, what you have to understand is you have created a predictable response in your opponent. So ev everyone should have a series of, and, and I'm not going to get into them here because there's so many different options, but when your opponent like clasps their hands like that, everyone should drill and have a few strategies for how to defeat that situation, right? And that, that's something that, um, or, you know, alternately, if the, there is a common escape like the hitchhiker, everyone needs to know how you need to position yourself to block that, right? And really it comes down to effectively controlling the far shoulder. We talked about this in the Double Trouble episode where the rotation comes from the ability for the guy to, for the guy to move his far arm, or sorry, his far shoulder or his far hip joint. So if you want to block the hitchhiker, that's when you either pinch or cross your ankles on the far side. And if you don't have a good enough pinch, you're probably going to lose the armbar. Yeah, and this is why... Uh you know, the mat time really does help because every time you train, you're basically programming your mind and, and incrementally, you know, you can't learn it all at once. Incrementally, you you build this experience by sort of, you know, throughout all your, all your roles, you, re, you realize like what your opponents are going to do for certain attacks. How are they going to uh, react? And then you can, you know, just continuously incrementally build on that every time. So really every time you're training, you're, you're programming your mind to recognize these uh these attacks. Yeah, it's that whole incremental learning thing again. You know, you can't learn everything at, in one go. So a lot of the time, the first thing you need to learn is what the move is and the mechanics of why it works. And then the second thing you need to learn is what are the predictable responses to that move. And then from there, you can start to get creative and add or subtract elements to accommodate your game. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, um, Matt, is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of predictable responses? Any examples that you want to give or any other principles that we haven't discussed? I think we went over pretty comprehensively some some submission-based examples, some standing uh, takedown-based examples, and, uh, you know, how it, all, how it all pertains to alignment. So, um, I think that's pretty good. And yeah. please... Guys, let us know what you think of this episode. And also, if you have maybe some other s examples of predictable responses, we'd love to keep hearing from you guys. Yeah, I definitely love to hear about any, like, especially like kind of like generally universal predictable responses that you guys want to talk about. Please do feel free to chime in and share your knowledge so that we can broadcast it out there to all of the other listeners. Another point, Matt, that we discussed prior to the show, which I think is worth uh, mentioning, is there always is a response. There is no such thing as a move where there is no counter. There's no escape. Um, there's always an escape. So this is important to understand because, you know, people get frustrated because sometimes, you know, ah, people keep getting out of my moves. But in reality, there is always an escape and nothing is so guaranteed and so foolproof that it's going to work 100% of the time. If, if there were, that would be the only thing we'd ever train, right? There, yeah. there would be no need to learn anything else if something worked 100% of the time. So, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that so really when when you're doing jujitsu the goal is not to get to a position where you're 100 certain that something's going to work it's yeah. to advance your alignment and reduce your opponents because every time you do that their odds of success go down just a little bit and if you can continually do that then you can increase the probability that you're going to win it's all just a game of math yeah and you just want to like you said you don't want to be that guy that uh 
that is always saying, what if, you know, mm-hmm. like when you're showing a technique, there's always that lower rank guy in class. What if I do this? What if I do this? Which what if is, I bite you? Yeah. <laughs> what if I do this? It's like, yeah, well, there, there's always going to be a what if. That's why the what if question is kind of silly because, you know, for example, if, some, if your professor is showing a technique and you think, well, that won't work because I would just do this. It's like you're actually not even thinking about it, but you're coming up with predictable responses mm-hmm. and your defense might be legit in that attack but the point of the of your instructor showing the technique isn't to say this is what this is always going to work this is something that i you know my opponent can't react in any way it's just it's just a technique and then of course there's going to be a predictable response there's going to be several predictable responses so the what if guy kind of sounds like a tool in the end (laughs) and usually a lesser experienced guy that doesn't understand the idea of predictable responses yet yeah well but that's not to say you should never ask what if because a big part of learning a move is learning those predictable responses but you also shouldn't be surprised to learn that your instructor is teaching you something that might fail like everything might fail so you you want to learn those predictable responses from my perspective it's fine to ask what if but don't be surprised if you're you know if there's a hole in this technique yeah every, no, every technique has a way out definitely definitely you need to know the what ifs let me rephrase that you do need to know the what ifs but you don't want to be that guy that thinks that he's got all the answers to or or that a technique isn't legitimate because i would just do this or whatever yeah. because then you start to sound like an ass so yeah. you're right so um yeah actually that whole conversation about like the, the odds of mathematically reducing your opponent's chances of success that's a, a Rob Bernacki thing, actually. I think he talks about it in the BJJ Formula DVDs. So if um, if you want to learn more about his philosophy, he kind of covers it there. But the important thing to know is that nothing is foolproof, uh, especially in jiu-jitsu. You know, the, when I started training, I thought, you know, oh, I want to get to the point where, you know, I'm confident I can win every fight. And then I realized as I got older, like, what I actually want is to never get into a fight because nothing is predictable in a fight. That's right? also very true. That, that's the one thing you really learn after training for a long time is like you never ever want to get into a real fight because it is so unpredictable as to what could actually happen yeah with factors that we don't even think about in the gym lava syringes drunk friends (laughs) bears (laughs) okay so uh, just to recap what we talked about today in terms of the mental models discussed we talked about predictable responses meaning stimulating your opponents so that they react in a way that you expect and you can predict and that way you don't have to think ahead of time you know what they're going to do hopefully before they even do it We talked about dictating the pace, the importance of being the one who is active rather than reactive in a fight. We talked about form to leave form, which is the Josh Waitzkin principle, meaning you want to drill things to the point where you don't need to think about them anymore because if you have to think about something, it gives your opponent an opportunity to take over control of the fight. We talked about funneling, meaning the strategy of progressively removing your opponent's options and forcing them down a road that plays into your game rather than into theirs. Uh, I actually think we probably want to have a whole episode on that at some point because that's so crucial to game planning is how do you get your opponent into the the game that is beneficial for you but not for them. Mm -hmm. We talked about technique chaining, the idea that single techniques in isolation rarely work but combinations of techniques will progressively break your opponent's alignment. We talked about masking your intentions, meaning that if, if your opponent knows what you're going to do because you've telegraphed it, you are providing a predictable 
response to your opponents and they can then exploit that and it makes it a lot harder for you to succeed at any particular strategy. We talked about controlled breathing and staying loose. Um, these are two biological predictable responses where your body can betray you if it's not trained to control itself in a stressful situation. And we talked about incremental learning, the idea that it, you can't learn everything all at once. So you need to be as an instructor, especially, but even as a student, you need to know what it is that you need to know now. And you need to practice that to the point where you see the limitations of your knowledge and start to get frustrated by them. And that's when you're ready for the next, the next piece, trying to overload people with information all at one go rarely works. Yeah. No, that was cool. very good. Steve. So let's talk about balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had. So we, we have an, an interesting question uh, actually from one of my guys, and he he said, Matt, you know, whenever I, I like, I really like doing arm bars, but whenever I go for arm bar, I just I always end up crushing my balls. Why does this happen, and why or how can I I prevent this from happening? So. Um, it's a really good question. I think a lot of people this happens to. Uh, and when I first first started doing jujitsu, armbar was one of my favorite moves that I one of the first moves that I really started focusing on, and I could hit consistently on someone. And uh, it happened to me, you know, like you would sometimes it's totally fine. You get the armbar, and then other times you would go for the armbar, and and like as you're finishing, you're you're kind of squeezing your testicle, and you know it it still sometimes rarely happens, but it it, it is a real thing, right? So how can you armbar someone without crushing your balls? So uh, you had a pretty what was your answer, Steve? So uh, from my standpoint, this, I mean, I think this happens to everybody or, or at least everybody who's male and trains. <laughs> We've all been there. Um, and it, even... Oh, at, you mean that doesn't happen to females? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually, I, I actually honestly don't know if there are... Presumably women have similar issues, right? Like I... I'd it, imagine. I would imagine. I mean, maybe not that particular type, but I would imagine that like, you know, chest to chest pressure can have totally different implications, right? Like it's, it's the kind of thing where, um, you know, you've got a weak spot. You've got an easily exploited weak spot. Now, luckily, the rules don't allow your opponent to exploit that, but that doesn't mean you might not hurt yourself somehow. So um, in terms of how I, I like to deal with this, the big thing is uh, a lot of the time people, they, they focus a lot on like how important it is to pinch their ankles, which is important, but it's also extremely important to pinch your knees together. For a long time, I was so hell-bent on pinching my ankles into my opponent that I wasn't even thinking about pinching my knees together uh, because you really you're not trying to like you shouldn't have your opponent's elbow right on your pelvis right like that that is not ideal you want to prevent the arm from getting down that low so that you get more leverage so if you pinch your knees together, then you can kind of trap your opponent's elbow between your thighs. And if you have a good pinch, it shouldn't get further down than that. Um, the other mistake that people make a lot is they they wait until the arm bar is set up and then they pinch their knees. And at that point, it's too late because the guy's arm is already like, you know, right up against your groin. So really what I, I find is important is as soon as you get the guy's elbow trapped between your legs, you immediately pinch your knees together. Um, that, that way, when you start to set up the arm bar and you start to progressively lock it on, it's not going to sink any deeper than it already is. It's going to stay right where you want it to be. So my general advice is remember to pinch your knees and and don't wait until you've got the arm bar to pinch your knees. Pinch your knees as soon as the guy's arm is between your legs. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty good advice. My, my advice was, um, let's say you're doing an arm bar from the closed guard. That was sort of my favorite position to hit it from would be closed guard. And in doing this, if you do a big swing with your leg coming over your opponent's head, that's when I found there was a lot of space 
to actually get your uh, testicles jammed up in between your legs and your opponent's arm. So it's I, now when I do my arm bars and I'm shifting my hips out to the side like that, I'm I'm thinking about doing this while placing wedges behind my opponent's shoulders. Um, this keeps them more trapped. It breaks their posture more, and it also makes a smaller transition when you're throwing your leg over their head. So. Um, you know, that, that is something that really helped me was I tried to not do such big movements when I bring my leg over my opponent's head. And then the other thing was, let's say I did get my leg over my opponent's head and I'm sweeping them and we're in like the spider web position now. So I think a lot of people, especially when they're newer and maybe they don't understand lever mechanics, is they think that the key to finishing the arm bar is to... Um, use their arms to pull down as hard as they can and bridge up as hard as they can. Uh, this this really will like ma- make your your groin a, a more I don't know what to say prominent yeah. fulcrum point. You're basically using your pelvis as the fulcrum, which is the problem, right? That's what you you don't necessarily want to do that. Yeah. So so more importantly, you want to think about the wet the wedges that you're applying around your opponent's arm, head, and shoulders. So. Um, you know, instead of trying to rip the arm off with your arms and and hipping in as hard as you can, it's more important to think about how your legs are pinching, like Steve was talking about, pinching your knees together, really isolating and immobilizing the, the near shoulder and even the far shoulder will give you more control. And then that's going to give you, um, usually I find it protects my, my balls more and, and uh I'm not put I'm not arm barring my opponent's arm directly onto my junk. I'm using like you said your legs pinching and uh yeah with the, with those tips that that should it should help you a little bit more and if you need more understanding on lever mechanics, I think we have a whole episode on levers that we've discussed yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh you know and also on finishing submissions with lever based attacks. Yeah. So um and also just a, a side note when I finish arm bars, um something that Rob showed me that's really cool is instead of trying to pull the hand down towards the ground, pulling it away from the body and down so that there's less slack in the joint is something that I found really amplifies the uh, finishing mechanics of the arm bar as well. Yeah, and another thing to bear in mind too is that not all arm bars are finished just by like you're perpendicular to the guy, your shoulders are on the mat and you pull his arm straight back. Sometimes, um, you know, there are variants of the arm bar where maybe you're on your side or you're turned a little bit. But the important thing is you just want to have a, like, a, you want to have a fulcrum under, behind the guy's elbow and you want to pull back in that direction. So if it is really, really a problem that you just can't overcome, then some, there are variants of the arm bars that operate at a slightly different angle that you can look into. I mean, some, sometimes for certain type, like body types, certain moves just don't work comfortably. So, the, you know, just bear in mind with the arm bar, there are variants of it, particularly the angled ones that might help. Um, but of course, the other option is you can just load up on steroids and then eventually your balls will shrink to the point where this isn't a problem for you. So that's also on the table. <laughs> and if you're not doing steroids, you're basically saying, I don't want an even playing field. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, you know, actually, while we're on this conversation, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I would be interested to know if our, our female listeners have any like similar like female type issues. Hmm, like, is, yeah. is there an, an equivalent to the age old, I crushed my balls doing the arm bar question that, that women have to deal with? Because we could definitely look into that and ask around. I, I'm wondering if maybe there is such a similar thing. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, you know. Let us know. 
It's a it's a shallower fulcrum point. So, <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> anyway, um, that was BJJ Mental Models episode thirty one. Hope that was helpful to everybody. And as always, we do look for questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes. Um, Matt loves it when you argue with him on YouTube. So feel free to just talk trash to him there and criticize my DVD. Yeah, criticize his DVD. This he, would never work in the street. Oh he's God, really fuck salty. You people. He's really salty <laughs> about that. So if you want to go there and just prod no. him a little bit. I'm definitely not salty. I just, I laugh that people still say that. <laughs> he says that this is like the, the fourth consecutive week where you've complained about this. So I think maybe there's something there. <laughs> I'm sure someone has baramboloed someone in the street. Yeah. Hey, if you've got a street fight video that you found floating around on like World Star, where someone barambolos somewhere else, someone else, send it to us. I want to see it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you next week. See you guys. Bye.